0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community delivering a damn good screaming bayonet charge to skewer the longer living historical myth. We are the home of angry historians in need of confrontation therapy. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and fellow historian, the legend that is Kyle Glover. Oh, hello. Thank you. You're welcome. And this week, dear listener, we're not only going back to the glorious days of the firm British Redcoat and the centuries-old tradition of fighting the French, but a follow-up to one of the points raised by a previous guest in Series 2. This week, dear listener, to do this, we are joined by former manager of Apsley House, podcaster, reviewer, blogger and co-founder of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity, Marcus Cribb. Marcus, welcome to History Rage.
2: Thank you very much for having me, and uh, hello everyone else, and uh, both your fine selves. Good evening, hello. Good evening, hello. feeling angry? Yeah, 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 my, you know, my beer's already been spilt, so I'm, I'm pretty miffed, mildly miffed <laughs> right. right now. Well,
1: the blood pressure's up. Right, I am all up for combat this episode, is we first connected after you called out Guy Walters on his episode on The Great Escape. And I thought, if somebody could actually have a rage about history rage, then I've just got to get them on. And then you offered, which made my job a lot easier.
2: I mean, (laughs) I I can't even know what it was, but my my grandfather was actually there. And so it was a a point close to my heart that he was like, I think he said it was like kind of pointless. And I was like, that's my grandfather, you know.
1: (laughs) yeah it's just a front to family honor yeah pistols yeah. at dawn um for our other listener that's out there though tell us a bit about yourself and your background and how you got into all this 19th century nonsense
2: yeah with with pleasure i've been really lucky that i've um had all of my career in heritage and museums um doing everything from bombington tap museum hms warrior and then i found myself uh being the manager of Apsy House, aka number one Number One London, the Duke of Wellington's home. And it was always there at the back of my mind. And I just, this catalyst just came out and I've just fallen head over heels down the Napoleonic rabbit hole with both Brown Bess and Baker Rifle uh, there. And yeah, as probably many people would say, it, it came about because Sharp, when I was a teenager, yeah. I, I bought the DVDs and I watched them in one sitting, which was like... 14, 15 odd hours of it. Yeah. Um, and then I was even out of <laughs> the country and got the other, the new Indian one shipped out to me. Um, so. <laughs> oh, well, that, that will have been a mistake, was not <laughs> it? <laughs> deeply, deeply disappointing. A uh, bit angry about yeah. that, actually. Um, but yeah, I, I'm there. And even though my career's, um, you know, parted ways from London because of the uh, pandemic, it's never going to go away under my skin. Um, you cut me and I start uh, ranting about Duke Wellington. Napoleon and the Peninsula War,
1: really. Right. So that leads us nicely into then what we've uh, got you in here to rant about today. So moving away from Zach's episode on uh, Waterloo and uh, f- focusing very much on Wellington himself. Marcus, with all the rage that you feel it worth, what would you like to see the general public just stop believing? <sighs>
2: The Duke of Wellington, let's get it straight, is not a defensive general. Okay, it doesn't happen. Okay, it does. And it happens mostly at Waterloo. It's very famous. We've got a train station named after it. Three hundred and twenty one place names in the UK named after Waterloo. It was the last battle the Duke of Wellington fought. And without it, we wouldn't have so much in this country today. However, It wasn't his most impressive victory. It wasn't his most important victory. And it was actually more of an exception than the rule. The Duke of Wellington is an all-round general. He only lost minor rearguard actions, which debatable when rearguard is actually a victory, a loss anyway, and sieges, notably Burgos. He went on the bloody offensive, and everyone seems to forget that. And it's a real shame that they did that if we go back to a say in india at the beginning of his career he's recently become arthur wellesley he was born arthur wesley in in ireland just to give everyone a bit of background he's anglo-irish which i think is really important doesn't get mentioned enough it's its own thing and people think, oh he's he's an irishman or they say he's a man born in a stables to the horse actually neither of which is true he never said that quote it's like a this is like a sub-rage thing um go for it <laughs> he never said even though a man may be born in stable it doesn't make him a horse okay and it gets said about him really derogatory all the time Say, oh he hated being irish he didn't say it andrew o'donnell said it about him okay so it's really important it gets said about him he actually got involved with loads of irish charities in his like later life and he passed the catholic emancipation act which i think we're going to Kind of roughly go back to uh, later Mm -hmm. with some politics, Mm -hmm. but he's he's Anglo-Irish, okay. So he's going to speak with an English accent, but he was embedded in um, the Irish society. He sat for Trim in Parliament, and he has you know he was the boy that his mother went, oh my awkward son Arthur. He's only going to be food for powder, gunpowder. He's going to go out, join the army, die. His own mother said that about him. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely, you know. (laughs) Talk about modern parenting.
1: Yeah, I get similar endorsements from my parents. Actually, come to think about it, you know,
2: you're doing well. You're doing well. You've got great things to come to you. Thank you. And um, he he goes on. I mean, when he goes to India, British Empire and nepotism at its best. His brother, his older brother Richard, is the Governor General of India, basically. And uh, yeah, he helps British expansionism. Uh, we can't uh, we can't avoid that in the in the modern world. But what he does is actually quite impressive. At Battle of Assay, he takes a force of just under like several thousand men and they, they attack something. And the estimates will never know this one. But it's roughly seven times their number, give or take. Now, that includes mm-hmm. a lot of bandits that are kind of adding on to the Indian army. But if, they, if the Indian army started to win, those bandits are going to start coming in. You're thinking men in really bright clothes and long lances and they're going to be coming in and they will spear you. He's only got three real British like, regiments, most of which are Highlanders, and he attacks through Indian cannon, who are actually really well-trained. And this is at like, a say. And what he does is he just goes Ooh. right, basically, and then through a fort and at them. So, and then they just keep going, give a few volleys, bayonets, keep going. And they keep going so much that actually some of the Indians are able to uh, play dead and jump up behind, and they have to turn back around. That's how quickly they're going in. So, Definitely not a defensive general. And then give or take uh, some other battles in the in-between. We have Flanders. We have Copenhagen. We're in the Peninsular War. So the Peninsular War, Napoleon's basically turned on his ally Spain. He demands things of Portugal. They actually do it. Uh, he goes in, and here we go, looting, pillaging uh, Spain and Portugal. Urgh, Napoleon, yeah. not a good guy. Okay, so we're into that. Uh, we could do a whole other rage about Napoleon. Yeah. What a wank.
1: Um, I actually <laughs> think that we've got uh, Zach coming back to do a uh, rage on, on Napoleon. Good
2: man. Good man. So we're in the peninsula and we've got uh, we've got Wellington. He goes in initially as quite a junior commander of the British expeditionary force. He goes in, he sees the French are uh, stationary and he goes after them. And actually they're on the top of a hill. He attacks them. They retreat and they got got even a higher hill, which are basically cliffs. And he beats them by attacking those cliffs. And that's Releaser. That's his first battle in the peninsula is on the offensive. He's going in. We have loads more battles in the peninsula. Uh, my specialism that I'm writing about is where he goes away effectively because of the treaty. He comes back in May 1809 and he sees that there's two nearby armies, one just over the Spanish border, one inside Porto, which we then called Oporto. And he goes on. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the way up there, the French put out a rearguard action at Grigio. It's on a hill. Guess what? He attacks the hill. He attacks them. Pushes them back. He's then in Porto. He's looking at a big, wide river, the River Duro, which is beautiful. People go on cruises down it. It's wide. And he sees yeah. the French on the other side and they're actually like taking all their loot and all their wounded out of the country. And he could just wait. You know, This is what a the defend- General would wait. He'd blast them with cannon, right? No. He gets one of his exploring officers, intelligence officers, to steal some boats that the Portuguese help with, because does he hate the French? They have looted and pillaged and raped this town. They bring the boats over. He takes them up. They go over a cliff and actually Wellington sees them kind of forming up, and he goes, "Let them cross." It's really kind of like lethargic. He knows that they've men can be let off the leash. They attack into the city. The French then attack there whilst he sends double flanking manoeuvres round, and they capture the city with very few British losses—about 170 British losses for about 3,000 French, including captured and then all of the treasury, all of the loot in the yeah. preceding weeks. He does similar things again at different battles. We've got Vittoria. We've got his master strike, Salamanca, which we must talk about later. Where he sees an opportunity, he throws a chicken leg probably over his shoulder. He says, by God, that will do. He goes in and they absolute storm through three lines yeah. of French. And at the end, we're in the Pyrenees. We're in the Pyrenees and he's attacking up mountains. These are mountain ridges with forts on top and he's attacking them. There are battles where, arguably, Wellington is on top of a ridge and he's defending it. Most famously, in my mind, we've got Vimero and Bucasa. But that's where he's gone into fight the French and then he's let the French come out here. So campaign-wise, he's on the offensive. Wellington is not a defensive general. He's an all-rounder and it's really, really annoying he's misremembered in history. Okay, so to get things kicked off, um, given everything you've gone through, where does this idea of Wellington being a defensive general come from? Where did this myth start? I think it's two points. It's it's one, it's Waterloo, and two, it's Napoleon-loving. So, hmm. oh dear, the only way that you can beat the world's greatest general, air inverted commas, is because you sit on a ridge and you didn't want to do anything. Well, Sorry, but there was a tactic behind that. Waterloo was fought on the 18th of June, but it was decided on the 16th and 17th of June. And on the 17th of June, Wellington sent over to communications with the Prussian headquarters and decided that they were going to sit on the midge-monstering job. And I think it's really important. that I don't want to downplay Blücher at any point when we talk about Waterloo, because it is a battle of three, actually, five armies. Mm. But it wasn't Blücher, because he was actually injured at the time. So it was the Prussian headquarters. And he decided... That effectively he's going to sit on this ridge and this is going to be unpopular, but it's going to be a trap and he's going to draw Napoleon in. And the Prussians are going to come in and close it like a single lever trap onto him, in, smack, down. Now they were actually expecting Napoleon to do something a bit more impressive and go by the West into Hal, And Wellington put 17,000 men into Hal as a flanking block. They weren't needed. They all won a medal at the end of it, but they just kind of sat down and kind of thought battle was coming. So It never did. So because Napoleon did what they kind of thought would be the easy route, but he won't do it, he went straight up the middle, they kind of, everybody's been writing excuses as to how Wellington was able to mastermind this. And they go, oh, well, he just sat on the ridge, didn't he? Just sat there. Really boring. Just let them come in. Yeah. Well,
1: Yeah. Barricaded a couple of farmhouses, and there you go. There you go. Yeah, Jobs on.
2: But he's, he, number one, he's going all around the battlefield. You know, he spends about 16 to 18 hours in the saddle, up and down, up and down. People couldn't keep up with him. So he's actually being really active. But there's a plan behind this. And that plan is to draw the French in. Two days previously at Capgebrac, he goes on the offensive out of Brussels, storming down into South Belgium and attacks. He then attacks and then counterattacks and attacks and and counterattacks. But again, kind of campaign wise, he's going back down to meet what is ultimately Marshal Ney, but he doesn't know if it's going to be Ney or Napoleon on the road. So... There's a lot of people who cannot believe that Napoleon's ever been defeated. Why he's gone down. Oh, woe is me. Napoleon never gets defeated. Well, actually, he's lost many, many times. Yeah. I hate to break it to people. Actually, i do i had great pleasure in it. The guy is a bastard. He's out there for himself. He only comes back at Waterloo because his ego can't be held on Elba. And he wants to come back in. And he wants to just die in glory. I, that's why I'm starting to come down. To. I actually think he wanted to die in. They had to cart him off. Either that or he just wanted one last <laughs> throw at the wall. You know, he wanted one last drink of yeah. the stock.
1: So, I mean, I'm no expert on the campaigns, but as I understand it, he'd already had his ass kicked a number of times in Egypt and North, North Africa before we even start getting into,
2: absolutely. you know, the, the rest of the thing. And both times, he left all his men behind. Like, he left Egypt with his men absolutely maroons. Nelson's gone in, done the Battle of the Nile. The French Navy is utterly, like, sink basically it's sunk it's at the bottom of the mediterranean and they can't really escape where it belongs at the time i, <laughs> I mean that. it doesn't do <laughs> us any harm it's, it's a good thing okay we're keeping tyranny yeah. at bay i strongly believe that and he and he can't do much unfortunately he comes back and gets first consul which is later ample. but uh, he leaves his men but they are they're left and they some of them take years to come back some of them you know die of all the disease out there when he goes into Moscow, he runs away. And people make excuses. Oh, there was a coup. There was a tension. There's always a coup. Napoleon's not as popular in France as everyone likes to wait, wait out. There was not 100% the French population waving flowers at Napoleon. There are, there are things called royalists. There are things called liberals. And there's a whole load in between the two of genuine political opposition. Charles Esdale and Rory Muir have done some fantastic work on this. Genuine political opposition. You know, if a, if a, you know, a dictator comes in, and we see this every time in history, you're going to allow that, some, that, that somebody is going to disagree with having a dictator in charge of your country. And some of those are yeah. extremists in themselves and some of them are you know, quite moderate. So people can't believe that he's be, Napoleon's been defeated. So what they do is they highlight that Wellington is a defensive general and that that's a really easy way to win a battle. Well, one, it was actually a bit of an exception. Two, well, it's a clever way to win a battle. So he's yeah. saving his troops' lives. Yeah. Is that not a good thing?
1: Yeah. A battle won is a battle won, and, if, yeah. and if you can save your men even better. Surely, you, you don't get bonus points for artistic impression and flair, do you? No,
2: you know, there's not somebody at the side holding up paddles going seven <laughs> great attack. You know, <laughs> this this is down to this is down to the loss. And what I like about Wellington, and you know, I am a is there a Wellington file but in this, and he's got flaws. He's got major flaws. This man, but at Waterloo and at Banderhof. weeps. And it's really important. This is a man who's seen enough war. Mm -hmm. Napoleon wants another go. He goes back to Paris. He wants another battle. We see it in 1814. We see it in 1850. He wants to keep fighting. Wellington says he'll never fight another battle. And he cries after war salute. Tears are seen staying down his face for about half an hour. He loses good friends. He loses like 17 to 25,000 men, depending on what we're counting. He's seen enough. Like Effectively, he's got he's got officers, he's got friends who are suffering PTSD, shell shock. He's basically on the outskirts of himself with some sort of um, traumatic stress, and it's that's it. I think if he'd seen more battles, then he would have broken. It. Uh, so he's win. He wins a battle by trying to do the least amount of damage to his own army. You know, you've got to think about the Long War. There could have been more battles. There could have been more fighting. Actually, there kind of was outside Paris. There, but it didn't bother the British much. Yeah. So they try to play down winning a battle by doing the smart thing. It's
1: a bad thing, and it's not. Yeah. Okay, so you gave us uh, examples at the start, quite a lot of examples, actually, <laughs> of Wellington go, well going on the offensive. But what would you say is the, the kind of the strongest examples of Wellington really going after it, really scoring the win? Because you, you stand test, like you say, win a battle the smart way, take the high ground, keep hold of it. When James Holland was talking about the Battle of Britain, you need at least three to one advantage to win if yeah. you're attacking. And Wellington's not doing this. So where, where, is he, where is he winning in spectacular style on the offensive?
2: So there's, there's, there's kind of five. Um, I, I normally count Porto because that's my thing. But I wrote a little article for military history now. And I code five, which was, uh, I believe I put in, Assay, Porto, uh, Salamanca, Victoria and Nive Nivelle, which is the Pyrenees. The big one we've got to go for is Salamanca.
1: Okay. Right. This is, I know nothing. You
2: know nothing. Here. Okay. Nothing. Nothing. So Salamanca, famous more for its dancing and nice bit of culture. So uh, we've, got, we've got a French army uh, with a couple of, di- couple of generals, effectively. I'll, I'll lay this out in simple terms. And Wellington's army marching in parallel. And they march for days in the Spanish sub. This is in July 1812. And they're marching in parallel. And they actually get so close that they think at one point they're about a kilometre apart. Now that's well within cannon shot. Mm-hmm. They're marching, marching, and Wellington's got a flanking force. He's, his back's to Salamanca, but they are, they're, fla- they're shadowing each other, and they're kind of both waiting for something to happen and to goad each other. There's a tiny bit of skirmishing over some territory, but it's not enough to draw in either army. Wellington's got to his flank a force, which is primarily the third division. still exists today, uh, uh, the Iron Division, uh, very famous in uh, World War II circles for fighting think' uh, mm-hmm and uh, the fighting third are there. Now, they're in the distance so much that the French actually think they're the baggage train uh, with all the, the wagons and all the supplies. And they start Tinting. to go, right, we're the French, and I hate to put a stereotype, but we loot. Okay?
1: <laughs> Germans counterattack for French loot.
2: This is, that is a stereotype that is sadly very <laughs> true. And they, and they start to go, and they go for it, and that leads, you know, you, you start to walk two people through a field, they'll walk side by side okay you walk 20 people through a field the the person at the back is naturally going to go slower than the person at the front it just starts to have this like caterpillar effect and this happens on a grand scale of tens of thousands of men and it leaves a gap in the middle for those who are like oh should we carry on our pace should we try to catch up and that causes a little bit of a gap now wellington's watching this there's actually a couple of different versions of this story uh, but my, he's either like sitting in an orchard or he's on his uh, famous charger, Copenhagen. And My favourite version of this story is that he's having his lunch and uh, his lunch, we actually know, was uh, cold meats and eggs and bread. So pretty, pretty plain. Napoleon brought like a mm-hmm. whole palace and he's probably chewing on a chicken leg, goes one or two storeys. And he sees a gap in the French line, big, big load of blue. OK, there's other uniforms in there, too. But. Primarily blue with white trousers, and all of a sudden there's a hole in the middle. Apparently he spits out his chicken leg, throws it over his shoulder, and he says, by God, that will do. Boom, activity, and these people start riding and we're getting into action. And he goes for it. He rides off himself on Copenhagen over to the 3rd Division, which is commanded by his brother-in-law, Ned Pakenham, who decided he dies in a battle of New Orleans, 1814. He doesn't actually get to Ned, but he gets to some of his aid to comps. And goes, go for it. So, and then he goes back, and he basically passes his own aides going one way. On the way back, he completely outstrips them. Wellington is a fantastic horseman. He's on Copenhagen, his famous charge, and he's going for. It. He gets back, and he starts sending the centre of his line in, go, 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 into the middle. The third division come flying round. They're led by heavy cavalry under a man Le Marchant. Le Marchand's actually written the book on cavalry, and I mean literally. He writes how to do the mm-hmm. drills, and he redesigns the cavalry sword. You think of sharp's favourite sword, big, long, straight one, and then there's a curved one. He designs those, so it's like uniformity. This is Le Marchand's moment, and they go in. Through the first French line, smash. Through the second French line, smash. The third line are in a bit of difficult terrain, so they start to wheel back around and slaughter in the shoes. Mounted men it's gets dismounted men of wool and tunics. Hacks slash thrust. In the middle, the British mm. infantry go in and they actually capture two French Imperial Eagles, including the 44th uh, East Essex. And they might have even caught thought. third. There's a lot of nice debate about whether the Connaught Rangers, uh, this Gaelic speaking regiment who are quite known for yep. their ill valor. Yeah, you know them. Uh, there's a really nice painting of them fighting over a Jingling Johnny, which is like a Turkish thing covered in belts. They might have actually had an eagle on that, and it's possible when they captured it, they tried to break it apart because they thought it was made out of gold. Instead, it was painted wood. Um, <laughs> so they got three major standards out of this, and they absolutely go for it. And uh, only the fact that the French managed to get some of their units that are out on the flank, who should have been fighting the Light Division. Sorry, sharp aficionados, the Light Division don't actually do much in this. The French, who were countering them, actually managed to come down act as a blocking force and put up a small rearguard. Otherwise, the French would have all been in the bag by the end of the day. Salamanca is a fantastic victory. It's often called a battle that's won in an hour, and it's Wellington's finest moment, or it's master strike. And it's mm. actually so much more impressive than Waterloo.
1: It sounds like, yeah. Now I've got to start going and doing some reading <laughs> on Salamanca.
2: There's a nice little video that Zach White and I did at the National Army Museum.
1: Excellent. Yeah. I will look out for that then. Shameless plugs aside. Um you mentioned the capturing of um two potentially three uh Imperial Eagles there. Now I'm not a military historian, particularly on that period. I've dabbled a bit a bit in Second World War, but really, what is the the importance of capturing an eagle? Everything. To both to both the French and the British.
2: Everything. It's hard to put this in terms of World War One, World War II, because we're in drab clothes and we're in mud and blood and poppycock, okay? However, we're in a time of brightness, gaudiness and honour, and it really, really matters. It's actually, you know, we're closer to Jane Austen than we are Blackadder. Yeah. And that's really important, that honour matters. What a man is thought of uh, and of other men, you know, jewels are fought over it suicides unfortunately done if you're dishonored you might go off and you know kind of dash your brains out with a pistol um it really matters and a regiment's honor is tied up in its color its flag. uh mm-hmm. typically the british had two you had a regimental standard and you had one from the king king standard the french they and i'm probably gonna get something wrong here they typically have three battalions to a regiment By this point of 1812, it's been reformed that the 1st Battalion carries an eagle. At certain points, all three battalions carried eagles. So you're the first of your whole regiment, and you're carrying with you your honour. Now, what makes the eagle different to the colours that we carried was that the eagles had been handed out by, guess who, Napoleon Bonaparte. He's personally touched them. And I often refer to it as the cult Bonaparte. The cult Napoleon is still strong today, unfortunately. Damn, can you imagine how strong it was back then? A dictator ruled by personality. He's touched that and he's given it out to your unit. And you're carrying that. So you've got the emperor's own hand. It's almost like carrying his chair or an item of his clothing with you. With all the honour of the whole regiment with you, and this is like a demi-brigade kind of star regiment, how they did it. Like a holy relic. It is a holy relic. Men will die over fighting for an eagle, in many cases. Uh, British Army, there's beautiful paintings of last stands in Afghanistan, the retreat to Kabul. People will really go for it. The first eagle that the British capture, because the Portuguese actually captured one first, good on them, Uh, the British capture one down at Brorosa, which is like near Cadiz on the south coast. Mm -hmm. And it's a Sergeant Masterson, and he goes in with his officer and uh, in the fight for it. So he basically says, we're closing in, you know, we fire a few volleys and it's bayonet time and it's going to get nasty. And the ensign gets hold of it and he's killed in the fight. And Sergeant Masterson basically takes it over and starts slaughtering everybody nearby. And he wants it because you're going to get honour yourself and glory and the French don't want to give it up apparently he might have said and this is my favorite quote of the peninsula war and i've got a few and people say he may not said it because he was a um, gaelic speaker but i hope he did apparently he took it took it back to his boys and went bejeebus boys i've got the cuckoo now i really (laughs) want it to be true and i'm not going to do a strong irish accent with it but it matters i'm a i'm a gunner i'm a reservist gunner your colors matter I was honoured enough to drive our colours, our vehicles past the Queen for Uber 300 uh, a couple of years ago, and people salute your tank, people salute your guns. You know, they matter. And that, there's a, you know, 300 years of tradition lined up in those. For these guys, it's every single man that they fought and died next to, their battles are emblazoned on those flags above your head. And they're impressive. You know, it's literally a fluttering mm-hmm. flag of gold braid over your head uh it, it's going to invoke that spirit it's kind of like last night at the proms so come on hurrah boys Harumph, stand up god save the king excellent well thank you for that
0: i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: So to just sort of turn back to one of the earlier points you made, you mentioned that Wellington went out of his way to avoid casualties. Um, We've had several guests from both this and other periods of history that mention how costly being an offensive general and fighting on the offensive can be. So given how relatively small Britain's army was, how did Wellington keep his casualties down? Yeah, so that's where the kind of the defensive thing comes from. Sometimes, as I say, there's really notable exceptions to this, where he goes on the offensive. But what he does, I think really importantly, is intelligence, intelligence, intelligence he gathers it. He has what we call exploring officers, which is the equivalent of uh, intelligence officers. They're going out, they're wearing uniform, so they legally cannot be shot as a spy, and they're building up a network across the Portuguese and the Spanish. What we get very early on is a man named Scoville. He actually cracks the Bonapartist code. And this is really great, because a bit like the Enigma, and we're kind of going on to a U571 kind of pop culture rapid <laughs> sorry. But the the, okay. the um <laughs> the brace yourself, Kyle. <laughs> no, the Napoleonic forces are basically still sending out their messages all the way through, can you imagine from Paris to the Portuguese border? They're sending out their messages thinking they haven't been decrypted. But what they do have and we haven't spoken about it yet are the guerrillas, And these are really important in the conflict now they're not as joined up as we think you know it's not the british army one side and the spanish and portuguese good as the other side some of them are pure bandits and they're just going to start raiding people others are people who want to who are really patriotic or actually really religious and that plays a factor and there's a there's the whole spectrum between the two but what they are doing is they are killing every Bally Frenchman they can find. And if you look up uh, the, the horrors of war by Goya, they do it in the most horrible way. The, the worst one I've heard is the Portuguese saw a Frenchman in half. They hold both his legs and cut him down. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. dinner time warning, folks. But what they're doing is they're taking this intelligence and sometimes they're selling it back to us. But where the French are generally sending it in triplicate, it means actually they're, they're tripling their chance of the messages getting captured. And um, Scoville, let's say one of Wellington's staff officers, he's cracked the code. So Wellington can read these messages. So it takes a little while to get there. But if you're writing about, you know, food for 50,000 men in, you know, Andalusia, he knows there's 50,000 men in Andalusia. It doesn't really matter too much that the, the information is going to be three weeks out of date. He knows roughly because it takes an army a long time to mark. So he's got intelligence. And that's really important. What he's going to do is going to be based upon a joined up picture. So he's not just going to start marching in the wrong direction. He's also, yeah, we're going to be on the hill, but he's got his own hills he can build. The lines of Torres Vedras. Do tell. Do tell. <laughs> so the one of the biggest uh, problems was between Wellington's early victories, which was Relisa so I mentioned earlier, and then there was Vimero. He goes away. There's a whole thing about treating you, Cintra, I work for you, but basically Wellington has to go back to Britain to clear his name. He's cleared. He comes back. So John Moore takes over. He marched into Spain. All goes a bit nasty. The intelligence picture isn't there. And there's the retreat to Corona. And there's a beautiful painting of this in uh, the Royal Green Jacket Museum with the, the 95th Rifles formed up on a row.
1: Yeah, it is a beautiful painting.
2: It's stunning. Um, and it's one of my favourites. And everyone check out the museum. However, it's because the intelligence picture is bad. And people are saying, you can't, you can't defend Portugal, mate. You know, it's not going to happen. Uh, Wellington, go in, have a look what you can do. But you probably want to bring guys out. And that's what happens when he arrives. There's a guy called Mackenzie and he's, he's evacuating. He's basically loading the guys onto the, the keys down in Lisbon. And that's the, that's the Porto campaign that I write about when it turns that round. However, he very quickly realises that he needs to defend Portugal. That is the main mission. Spain will come later. Portugal is the key. They're our ally here. If it all goes up the creek without a paddle, he has to defend Lisbon. Lisbon is the seat. So what he does, just a few miles outside of Lisbon, is he builds the lines of Torres Vedras? So these are a series of hills, and he puts hilltop forts on them. British engineering design, importantly, local labour building. it. We're paying for it. This is not slave labour. We're paying for it. Mm-hmm. The Portuguese men are digging ditches and building forts. Really close together, there's dozens of them. And they interlink. There's actually even lines where actually there's just like kind of walls that you can move people between. Uh, where they can be in cover. There's trenches where it goes down to the river on one side. They chain blockade it and they put Royal Navy gunboats on. You cannot move down to Lisbon without going through this. Wellington then actually starts to bring food back inside. And after his uh, action at the Casso, which is like a mountain ridge, it's stunning. Went there recently and the mists were coming in and you cannot believe that the French attacked up this thing. It is a mountain ridge, but they did. Wellington, this is at one time you stand on this position honestly and you go, yeah, I do the same. I don't care about one other <laughs> things. I'm, not, I'm not talking about mountain and they're coming to me. I can defend this thing with a slingshot. Okay. So <laughs> he stands up there and when he starts to be outflanked, he just kind of buggers off back to the lines of Torres Vedras. He's done it in secrecy enough. The French, they've heard that there's some digging, but they don't know what it is. And they effectively starve the winter outside the lines. Now the British are in the forts with for the food and the French, I mean, empty terrain every time they go off to go and find some food and there happens to be a village that might have been like burying their grain if one of the french dragoons goes off by himself he's probably going to come across a portuguese peasant woman who's had her like children raped and her husband killed and she slits their things so that's the kind of warfare we're into it's brutal but it's well joined up as a picture and that's how wellington's able to kind of use and pick his battles and that's, and that's the last thing. He uses the intelligence. He uses the fact that he's got a stronghold he can go back to. And he chooses the battles. He walks away from some of them. Why fight a battle yep. he's going to lose? If the French have got, they've got about 250,000 men in the peninsula. He struggles to get up to 70,000. If they're going to bring one of these forces that's 100,000 plus men towards him, he walks away from it. There's no point fighting a battle just so you can talk about it in Piccadilly. going to lose.
1: Good point. Good point. So what we've got now is a guest question, particularly a guest question from Zach, which he assured me would set you off a treat. But who's better, Wellington, Napoleon or Davout? Yeah, great. Thanks, Zach. Um, <laughs> yeah, he knew, you'd, he knew you'd get
2: stuck by that one. Um, the, but to me, it's, it's apples and oranges. They're really damn different. What we don't have is that Wellington ever faced Davout. Uh, the Iron Marshal. So he's, he's really known for his logistics, he's really known for his manoeuvres, and he doesn't feature at Waterloo. He's never in the peninsula. What I'm going to go out on a limb to say is Wellington defeats every marshal that faces him. You name most of his other marshals, Massena, Ney, they're there. They're in the peninsula, and he sees them off one way or another, on the offensive on the defensive. People like Salt, He's a very, very talented general. He's often rated right up there. He becomes Prime Minister of France. He's still thought of in high regards. He defeats like six times. He just keeps battering him away, especially in the Pyrenees. And for all the way to, Porto, to the Pyrenees, into uh, Toulouse, he's, he's defeating Sout. And he's a, he is a talented officer, master of looting, funnily enough, but a really talented mm. officer. The only time we can pitch Wellington versus Napoleon is at Waterloo. Yeah. And, oh, the podium's got a dicky tummy, he's got piles, and he's not feeling very well, it rained the night before. They're only like four months different in their age. You know, they're the, same, they're the same age. Wellington's got the energy. He's got the eye for the topography. And that's something he's always had. He picks those hills that he wants to fight on. He picks the valleys he wants to attack on. He picks a hill that he wants to build forts on. You know, to me, and I'm, this is not going to be a surprise, listeners, gents, Wellington's the best gent. He wins. Yeah. Who, who carries on his career? Right. Who sits on an island, lucky he's not executed for coming back? Napoleon. He sits there crying about it, effectively, writing his memoirs, going, Oh, life's so tough. I've had it so bad that they've only sent me so many bottles of wine tonight. Oh, they're not writing letters, they call calling me emperor. <laughs> oh, you know, suck it up, bust the cup, you lost. Um, what were you going to do? So, like we, it's really tough. And people will debate this, then they'll say, is, is it Wellington or Marlborough? Uh, was Napoleon as good as Alexander or Caesar? You know, or was it Genghis Khan? Um, and they will always debate these things.
1: But, yeah, that's what historians do.
2: Uh, and I'm not going to get bored of it. Hopefully you're not going to get bored of it. Hopefully no, bored no. of it. It's like, keep the rage going. You know, it
1: Caesar, but, obviously. But go yeah. on. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but we don't go into, you know, Thermopylae Station. We don't go into Hadrian's Wall Airport. But we do go into Waterloo Station, you know. Yeah. We we yeah. do have multi we've got Wellingtonian trees. Okay, British bias coming out here. But just with a pinch, Wellington's better done.
1: Yes. As if it was in any doubt at okay, all. Okay,
2: it wasn't. But <laughs> I wanted to, like, lead you there a little bit. We can't talk about Wellington without his crowning achievement, the Battle of Waterloo. What is your take on the Battle of Waterloo? I I, I think it's fair. I mean, I've I've talked about it, I've ranted about it, praised about it, but it's so important. Okay. So the men fighting at the Battle of Waterloo, let's talk about the line infantry, Tommy Atkins. He was probably Mm -hmm. born when there was already a war with France going on. After Waterloo, he gets forty years of relative peace. That's what it does to Britain. That's what it does to Europe. Yes, there's still conflicts. Yes, there's a there's an uprising in Belgium. There, yes, there's some liberal mm. uprisings primarily. But wars between major powers in Europe and it's Eurocentric, of course. Is forty years of peace. We'd have to wait until, ah, oh, funny enough, Russia and Crimea. Okay, it's. That's that's what we've got to get to, topical. um, So, you know, we were talking about one dictator earlier. um, But that's where we've got to get to until we've got major powers fighting. Actually, at which point, Wellington has died. And there's all sorts of debates about whether he was a reformer or a blocker uh, when he's commander in chief. But Waterloo is really important. It gives people peace. It gives actually like a chance. And, you know, for better or for worse, that's when Britain starts to really go into overdrive expansionism we don't actually have the hegemony of France here to oppose anyone. Uh, Spain's got to rein it in a little bit. So if you put the timeline out, 1805, the Spanish are fighting against us at Trafalgar. 1807, 1808, they've got to suddenly join our side. So it's a really short timeline that they've suddenly got to change sides and eat a little bit of humble pie. They and the Portuguese then end up with all sorts of internal strives of kings going away, kings coming back, being in, out, in, out, shake it all about and they start having internal politics. Britain now starts to expand. We can really hit the industrial revolution going because funny enough, we don't have to pay for so many wars. There's actually a whole load of banking stuff, which I won't get into with the Napoleonic Wars. It's one of the first times that we basically like, tear up um, some of our like, kind of things around gold reserves. Uh, mm-hmm. With the earlier Napoleonic Wars, it's not the first time, but it's the major time that we bring in something called income tax. They wanted to get rid of it. Um, You look at your payslip at the end of the month. Yes, thank you very much. We've got teaching and education and NHS, but actually, oh, damn, I wish I could really pay for some more beers at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Pit the Bloody Younger.
2: (laughs) But we're paying for that out of income tax rather than some other way of the corporate tax. And that's where it comes from. So that that end is ending allows Britain to really prosper. And love it or hate it. The British Empire is really built upon the victories of that. Culturally, you know, it's important. You know, I worked in Apsley House. I was very lucky to be in there. We had the Waterloo Gallery. It's beautiful. It's stunning. But it's not the Salamanca Gallery. It's the Waterloo Gallery.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, people were always talking, and I think we, earlier on, um, three of us were, were talking about D-Day. And I think if you talk about, if you, if you had to pick battles, still debate. You'd probably pick D-Day, um, Stalingrad, the Somme, and the Waterloo from modern military history. <laughs> so you're going to choose those. And genuinely, Waterloo people debate down to the weather. 1815 saw one of the greatest volcanic explosions ever over in Indonesia. And that sense of volcanic ash into the sky that changed the rain. It was actually one of the deadliest volcanic explosions ever, not only to the uh, magma, lava uh, flows that killed the uh, local population but we called it the summer uh, the year without summer it's where uh, lord byron and mary shelley wrote their um, poems and that became frankenstein because they didn't have a summer the the, the countries of the world started to starve but after waterloo just so happened to coincide with the sun coming up it's really really important and it gets overshadowed by modern conflicts and modern remembrance if i'm allowed to say it you know this is where um, as Paul mentioned, Zach, but also a whole host of other people. This is not a Marcus and Zach show. We've got academics yeah. from the Netherlands, America, Spain, Ireland, and we're, we're talking about the Revolutionary and Napoleonic War Graves Charity, and we want to one of those people. So, But that's where we want to kind of go to, the, uh, the Napoleonic Revolutionary Wars, for that charity, because we think that those people should still be remembered the same way they remembered the Great War. So, Waterloo is up there, and you're never going to hear the end of Waterloo. But also, can we just talk about all those other wars as well and all those other battles?
1: We've often heard of Wellington through several sources, a whole string of potentially apocryphal tales, uh, that he's a great general, but a lousy prime minister and politician. So, what's your take on his political career and how does his military background and history? kind of affect his politics
2: yeah so uh i once did a podcast where zach was hosting me and he says that wellington's uh, political career and this is such a great analogy i'm really annoyed at him his his political career is a bit like the last season of game of thrones you end up with all that amazing build-up and then it's just so disappointing <laughs> and I'm talking. I'm talking about dragons and everything, just squashed into one. If you haven't seen it, don't bother. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do still slightly disagree with Zach, as much as I like that analogy. And what really annoys me at the end of my being really annoyed is um, I was lucky enough when I was the manager of Upsy House. Is the current Duke of Wellington hosted an evening for the first Duke of Wellington's 250th birthday, and he had lots of faces in modern politics and influence. And speaking there was Lord William Hague, former leader of the Tory party. Yeah. Now, controversial figure, I'll take you. But what he's written is a really good book on William Pitt. And he's also quite a good speaker. And he spoke about how good a politician the Duke of Wellington was. And i had always thought, oh, yeah, well, Wellington, I like him, but he's a snob and he's a bad politician. And I wish I would recorded it because I can only remember half of it because I was working. And it was a really, really good speech. And it has gone, it forced me to kind of go away and start looking at this a bit deeper. So I have to then go back to the first part of the question. How did his military career affect his politics? Well, he becomes prime minister uh, in 1828. Uh, uh, he actually goes into politics under the understanding. and I think this is really important. That he first off becomes a political. So he takes a position in cabinet uh, for the like, master of the ordnance that he will not join the Tory party. And that, that, I think, shows a little mark of it. He eventually becomes, like, an ultra-high Tory, but he wants to stay off being a little bit neutral. And i, I just also throw this out, like, Tory then, Tory now, quite different. Like, bit. Yeah. Okay. Like, Conservative with, like, a big C, but also, like, the lineage isn't really there, okay? So he, he tries to stay apolitical, and he's given all – he's given so many titles. He ends up as, like, the lead ranger of Hyde Park. You know, he doesn't really mean it. He gets all these titles. <laughs> Uh, you know, he's effectively he's like judging the loveliest legs competition in uh, Father Ted here. And he's going for it. He becomes Prime Minister. He's, he is the most famous man in the country. And I can never find the best analogy. He's somewhere between seeing Prince Charles and like Brad Pitt walking down the street. That's who you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And people salute him every day. They love him. They laud him. And so when they ask him to become Prime Minister and leader of the Tory party, he, he accepts it. He, it. Where can his career go? And... He holds his first cabinet meeting, he, he gives them his orders, he tells them, and then they all turn around and question him. And he's like, What the blue blazes is this? You know, come on, chaps. I've i told you what to do, do it. Well, these are politicians. This stuff's going, oh I don't this gonna do. Well, is, is the timing quite right, Your Grace? Yeah. You know, he doesn't really settle. He wants to tell me what to do, they do it. What is gonna be the big debate here is he goes into this. And this is my take, Mm -hmm. okay? He goes into this with the understanding of a man named Robert Peel. So Wellington sits in the upper house, the House of Lords. That's very normal at the time, okay? Theoretically, you could still lead the the government from the House of Lords today. just hasn't happened in about 100 years. He's there, but he knows he needs to support the lower house, the House of Commons. That's where Sir Robert Peel comes in. He's not a lord, so he sits in the House of Commons. They have a pact that Wellington's gonna go in, he's gonna do what he wants, but he's gonna support Peel's reforms. Peel is then put as Home Secretary, and his reforms are about penal reforms. He reduces the number of capital punishments massively. Now, arguably, they're mostly XR to Australia, but we're not chopping people's heads yep. off at Marble Arch. So, thumbs up. He also brings in a little thing called the Metropolitan Police Force. Uh, and they're called or yep. bobbies that's where we get it from now i think and you know people disagree with me i think we've got to give wellington a little bit of credit for that they're not called wellies okay we don't call we don't call them dookies when they come in with the blue lights on but they're underneath wellington he's the prime minister it's his pact he can overrule it he's also got to get all of the lords to vote for it or else not so he's got to be behind it he's got to be giving it you know his whips have got to be enforcing this he does that he also gets through some really nice relief acts, for, especially for London. I say he actually you know, forces through um, some charitable actions, especially for the Irish in London, the Order of St. Patrick. Yep. And lastly, and most importantly, Catholic emancipation.
1: The one he fights because the of duel over. G-
2: the one he fights the duel over. So we're going to get into dueling right at the end. So because of Guido Fawkes, Catholics at this time are second class citizens. The amount of lands they can hold, the offices of a uh, state they can hold and their voting rights are basically out the window. You can live here and not be harassed, but you're going to be looked down upon. But where you can actually go socially um, and we're still in this kind of like, you know, Regency Georgian uh, society is limited because you're a Catholic. Now, this is where I go back to Boy Born and Stable. He's
1: probably quite
2: sympathetic because of how many of his friends are Irish. Arguably, yeah. how many of his friends in the army would be Irish? And he gets it through. Now, it brings in a whole load of things. There's a whole thing there of King's College, and he's in- insulted by uh, Lord Wooden Chelsea. So he takes it as a personal snub, and he calls him out. And they go, to, um, they go to Battersea Fields, near where the power station now is, and they fight a They both fire wide. Little bit of debate whether Wellington was just a bad shot. Like, <laughs> really, we've only really got this to go off. Uh, and apparently, he's heard in the morning saying that he's going to fire wide. Uh, they both fire wide is settled, done. Last Prime Minister to fight a duel. What a scene that would be right now. they um, fight a duel. And it goes through, except it's still got to have the royal assent. So these days, you know, someone puts a letter in front of the Queen, her madge, scribble, scribble, scribble. It's Lord. You know, it's done. Yeah. Lord, done.
1: I don't recall a single time that she said no to anything that's come through.
2: And there's been a little bit of debates now and then that she might have done it. But here we've got, George IV, okay, son of the bad king. This is the fat one for any horrible history fans out there.
1: Okay. <laughs> the fat one, not the mad um, one.
2: The fat one, not the mad one. And he doesn't like, he, he doesn't really like Catholics. He's, you know, bigoted, biased against them. And he said, says that he's not going to do it. Now, that would be a constitutional crisis, but he doesn't care. He really doesn't care. Wellington actually stands there in front of the king's desk, and says, if you don't do it, I'm going to resign. And if I resign, I lead the largest party, which means that the Whigs, these days like the Liberals, are going to take it over with a minority government, and you won't get anything done. And they want to bring in the great Act, and that's going to see all of your friends in the House of Lords out in the street. And he stares down the king to get his way. Now, if that's not politics, I don't know what is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I stand firmly corrected there.
2: There's a whole other school of thought on it because he blocks the great format afterwards. They literally pelt crap at his carriage, and they break his windows. They they throw stones through the duke's windows because he's so unpopular. And because of that, he puts iron shutters on Apsley House. Very sad to hear that. He gives him the nickname the Iron Duke. It's nothing to do with his military reputation. It's to do with throwing stones. So he doesn't become that popular. But we fast forward thirty years, 1852. The Duke of Wellington sadly passes away in September 1852. And proportionally, the best of my research that I can ever find, it's the largest turnout for the population of the United Mm -hmm. Kingdom, Great Britain and Northern Ireland that has ever existed. Queen Mum, Diana, Churchill, Nelson. More people turn up to Wellington's out the proportion of the population than anyone else. I will happily be proved wrong. I, I don't stand by that. But that's the best of my knowledge. How important he was later. He spends those thirty years when he's not a prime minister, advising all the other kings. He's still invited to dinner and invites to dinner. King George, King William, often forgotten. He's at his coronation and is one of his advisers, and he's also the adviser to Queen Victoria, who invites him to form government. And he basically says, "No, I'm too old. You don't want me. I'm a I'm a fuddy-duddy. You don't want me." But he remains one of her um, advisers. One of her really close friends. She really weeps and is upset when he dies. So it brings us into effectively the Victorian era. So his influence spans all of that. He's always just there at the scenes, yeah. welcome with advice when they want him to. But he doesn't get as as involved. Well, thank you, and oh, thank you. And that gives me.
1: Well, I could comfortably say a lot that I now know a lot more about the Napoleonic Wars thanks to you, Zach, and to be fair, Bernard Cornwall. So
2: yeah, I mean, thanks, Bernard. Cornwell.
1: So thank you very much for coming on, Marcus, and thank you very much for getting in touch to to offer us this rage. Have you had fun? Do you feel better?
2: I've had, oh, it's really therapeutic. <laughs> yeah, well, spread the word. <laughs> are, you, are you charging like counsellors' fees? Because I feel so much better. Do <laughs> you
1: kidding? Me? We can't even get Patreon subscribers. Come on.
2: <laughs> no, I feel a lot better. I had a lot of fun with that, so thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, brilliant.
1: thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know more about Marcus's work, then check out his excellent blog and website at www.dukeofwellington.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at mcribhistory, and that's with two Bs. So, ladies and gentlemen, hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and your own History Rages using the hashtag HistoryRage. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe to us on Patreon as your £5 per month can get you episodes up to three months ahead of the usual release and weekly. And you can even get yourself a coveted History Rage mug. You can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. Subscribe now, guys. In the meantime, until next time, thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.